Today on the Matt Wall Show, protests over the death of criminal vagrant Jordan Neely continued over the weekend with mobs of leftists actually standing on the train tracks to stop the trains from moving. Meanwhile, a panel in California has officially approved reparations payments of up to $1.2 million for black residents. I'll explain how these stories are actually related. Also, some new polling looks brutal for Biden, and that's according to the mainstream media, so you know it must be bad. And ABC has obtained exclusive, and they say shocking, footage of a Ron DeSantis debate prep session. Plus, there were two mass killing attacks over the weekend, but neither fit neatly into the left-wing media narrative. In our daily cancellation, the woke mob attempts to cancel the children's cartoon Bluey for the sin of body shaming. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. With everything going on in the world right now, you could really use a good night's sleep. That's why you need to check out Helix Mattress. Helix has harnessed years of extensive mattress expertise to bring their customers a truly elevated sleep experience. They just launched their new Helix Elite. The Helix Elite collection includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. I've had my Helix for years now. I absolutely love it. Night after night, I sleep like a sweet, sweet baby, and uh, I want the same for you to sleep in your own mattress, not in mine, just to be clear. Helix has a sleep quiz that matches your body's type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress because why would you want to buy a mattress made for somebody else? Go to helixsleep.com Walsh. Take their two-minute sleep quiz to find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Their flexible payment plans make it so that a great night's sleep is never far away. For a limited time, Helix is giving you 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Take advantage of this amazing offer at helixsleep.com Walsh. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Protests continued to rage in New York City this past weekend as mobs of leftists expressed their shock and outrage over the death of violent criminal vagrant Jordan Neely. Protesters flooded the subway system shouting, no justice, no peace. And at one point, they even jumped down onto the tracks right as a train was arriving at the station. Uh, watch. This uh, presents a, a bit of a new spin on the famous trolley problem, if you're familiar with that. Though some would argue that in this case, there really is no, no problem. There's no dilemma. We also came very close by the looks of it to seeing a political demonstrator literally touch the third rail, um, which uh, I'm not saying, I would never say that I wanted to see that happen. I would never say that. I would never say it. But apparently nobody was harmed except for all the normal working people who were simply trying to get on with their day and instead found themselves in the middle of a mob with a collective IQ that barely cracks triple digits. One journalist covering the scene caught uh, this interaction between um, a man, a black man, trying to get off the train in order to get to work and a group of protesters who took this as some sort of personal affront. Watch. You will not be late for your 
Yeah, it's a little hard to hear what's being said there, but she's assuring him, well, take a different train. You're not going to be late for work. You with your stupid job. That's right, sir. You know, I'm sorry, but these, these protesters have decided to use the subway system as a platform for their performative, uninformed, emotional outburst. And so your job will just have to wait. Your need to provide for yourself must uh, take a backseat to their need to get footage of themselves protesting so they can post it to TikTok. This is, this is life in New York City now. You might be accosted by a psychotic drifter while commuting to your job, or you might be accosted by a mob protesting on behalf of a psychotic drifter while commuting to your job. Of course, uh, if you are actually killed by a psychotic drifter, as plenty of people in New York City, especially in the subway, are every year, there will be no protests on your behalf. That's just, that's life in the big city. But as the dumb brainless mob carried on being a dumb brainless mob, more information about Neely came to light. And it's now abundantly clear, based on reports dating back a decade, that Neely was a known menace. That's important. He was known. People that took the subway every day in New York knew about this guy, a known menace who had apparently been terrorizing commuters in the subway system for years, which is why he was arrested all those times and yet released back onto the street every time. As the Daily Wire reports, quote, a man who said that he was previously assaulted by Jordan Neely is speaking out about his experience in the wake of the untimely death of the 30-year-old. Neely died last week after a U.S. Marine veteran named Daniel Penny and at least two others restrained Neely following alleged threats and erratic behavior um, on a New York City subway train. Quote, he should have been in some rehab center, said Philemon Castillo-Baltazar, uh, speaking of Neely, speaking to New York, New York Daily News. Baltazar said that he was assaulted by Neely while he was waiting for uh, a train back in 2019. He says that he was approached by Neely out of nowhere and punched in the head. He said, quote, I felt a punch to my head. He didn't say anything. He just hit me. He hit me above my right eye. Uh, the assault victim added that Penny shouldn't be punished for his actions. Now, Baltazar's experience sounds similar to another Neely victim who has also spoken out. This is from the New York Post this time. It says, an assault victim of the dangerous homeless man choked to death by a Marine on a northbound F train this week ripped the city for not forcing her attacker to get the mental health treatment he clearly needs. Anne Mitchell Tree said she was randomly punched in the head in June 2021 by Jordan Neely inside SK Delhi Market on 2nd Avenue in the East Village. The attack caused swelling and substantial pain but left no permanent damage. After police arrested Neely, Mitchell Tree, 65, assumed her aggressor would face charges and psychiatric lockup. And uh, she was sadly mistaken in that case. Now, if you've been following the story, you might hear about Ann Mitchell Tree and think that, well, this, this is the case that resulted in the active warrant that was still out for Neely at the time of his death. There was, a, there was a warrant out for his arrest. But you'd be wrong because Mitchell Tree is 65 years old. The victim in the other case is 67 years old. Now, it's understandable that you would get them confused as Neely was going around assaulting multiple elderly women. This man was such a horrendous scumbag that when someone refers to the grandmother he brutally assaulted, you have to respond by asking, which one? Of course, the, the race hustlers on the left are pretending, as always, that the violent, predatory history of their latest racial martyr is somehow irrelevant. Chief race hustler Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez tweeted on Saturday, quote, Watching media give the Brock Turner treatment for the killing of a homeless man has been nauseating. A person having a record does not excuse killing them. Neither does being poor, sick, or homeless. Virtually every one of us is closer to being in Neely's shoes than we think. Well, speak for yourself, AOC. I am 
I, I can say, and I'm, I'm no saint by any measure, but I can say that I am nowhere near the point of walking up to a 65-year-old woman and bashing her over the head. Okay, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. Uh, if you personally feel those sorts of inclinations, that's your own issue. As for the claim that his record doesn't excuse killing him, well, you're obviously missing the point, and intentionally so. The point about his violent history is, first of all, that it should at least cause you to refrain from turning this man into a canonized martyr. Even if his killing was unjust, which it wasn't, uh, even if he is a victim, a murder victim, and it's a terrible, terrible thing, again, I don't concede that, it still would be absurd to pretend that you're deeply mourning the death of a violent predator who apparently contributed nothing but violence and misery to his community. Look, 13,000 people die every hour across the world every day. Okay, it's a lot of people. It is, at a minimum, totally absurd to have a week of national mourning over the death of a violent criminal who assaulted old ladies. I mean, you can claim that every death is sad in its own way. Maybe that's true. But why have you chosen this one? Lots of people, we don't have to say across the world, lots of people die every day in this country. There have been plenty of other murder victims just in New York City over the past couple of weeks. And many of those victims had no history of randomly threatening and assaulting pedestrians. So why not choose one of them? Why this guy? Why are you pretending to be sad about the death of Jordan Neely when we all know that if he'd been killed by some other black homeless guy, you would say absolutely nothing at all. You would step over his body on the street and keep walking without missing a beat. So why Neely then? Well, we've already answered the question. His death is useful to you. There's also another more practical and immediate reason why his brutal criminal history is relevant. Um, again, the regular commuters on the subway knew him. They knew about his tendency to violence. They knew he was a danger. They knew he was prone to violent outbursts. So there's a very good chance, we don't know if this is true, but there's a very good chance that the people, multiple people, not just one, who restrained Neely on the train that day also knew this about him or heard it from somebody else said, oh, that's the guy that, you know. And even if they didn't, it doesn't matter because the fact is that Neely made explicit violent threats. Even if they were responding only to those threats in the moment with no knowledge of his background, it would still be more than justified. Now, Something else happened uh, over the weekend that I think ties into the story, though it may seem on the surface unrelated. NPR reports, reports, quote, California's reparations task force voted Saturday to approve recommendations on how the state may compensate and apologize to black residents for generations of harm caused by discriminatory policies. The nine-member committee, which first convened nearly two years ago, gave final approval at a, a meeting in Oakland to a hefty list of proposals that now go to state lawmakers to consider for reparations legislation. U.S. Representative Barbara Lee, uh, who is co-sponsoring a bill in Congress to study restitution proposals for African Americans, at the meeting called on states and federal government to pass reparations legislation, quote, reparations are not only morally justifiable, but they have the potential to address longstanding racial disparities and inequalities, Lee said. The actual payments under this proposal, and it is just a proposal, but if it goes, if it is uh, enacted, it would be up to $1.2 million each for each eligible black resident. Now, I've already explained why reparations are a ludicrous, unjust, 
morally incoherent idea. We cannot allow people to cash in on the injustices committed against their ancestors centuries ago. Because if we did that, then everyone, all people on earth, should get a check. Because we all have um, suffering in our bloodline. We all have persecution in our family tree. Now, which of us are in a better or worse spot because of those historical experiences? It's impossible to say. You especially can't play this game with slavery, of all things, given that slavery is a global sin, and there is no race, there is no group which is innocent of it. Africa enthusiastically practiced slavery until the late 20th century. We've talked about this before. An African country was the last country on earth to legally prohibit slavery. And that didn't happen until 1981. And as for the transatlantic slave trade, it, you know, it's, it was African nations and tribes that caught and captured and sold the slaves into the transatlantic slave trade. So a black person in America today may be the descendant of, a, of slaves. He may also be the descendant of slave traders. He may be both. And many of us are likely both if you go back far enough. How does this relate to Jordan Neely? Well, because one argument, you just heard it there uh, from the Democratic lawmaker. Um, one argument for reparations is based on the current condition of the black community, the, the uh, longstanding inequalities, as we're told. As the argument goes, the black community is in, is in worse shape than most other racial groups by nearly every metric uh, because of this historical legacy of slavery. And these reparations would not only redress the wrong, but they would also help boost the community and then, you know, in a, in a practical way, repair the damage. But practically speaking, this is wrong. You cannot solve a person's problems by just handing them a million dollars. Look at the tragic history of, of Mega Millions lottery winners, if you want to learn more about that. Besides, there is a better and more holistic way to help this community. Um, in fact, I've got two, there's just, just two ideas off the top of my head. Instead of reparations, we could, first of all, stop lionizing and making role models out of the absolute worst members of the black community. Okay? The left makes heroes out of scumbags of every race. We know that. But at the same time, there's no white George Floyd. Um, there's no white analog for Jordan Neely. Which isn't to say that, there's, that there, there are no white, vagrant, scumbag, uh, you know, uh, psychotic criminals going around assaulting people. There are. But none of them are taken and turned into heroes. And on the right, we typically chalk that up to anti-white bias, and it is. But at the same time, as a white person, I, don't, I wouldn't want mentally ill vagrants and drug-addicted career criminals presented as our martyrs and heroes. I wouldn't even want that. You know, you tend to become what you admire, and these are the black people that the left puts forward for admiration. Second, one of the, one of the best ways to help any community um, is to put the dangerous people in that community in prison. Better than, we talk about repairing damage, well, instead of repairing damage, how about we, we prevent damage in the first place? And one way that you could do that is by taking guys like Jordan Neely and locking them away. You cannot pretend that you're interested in helping the black community while you insist on making black neighborhoods more dangerous by refusing to prosecute criminals. Simply enforce the law 
enact justice on criminals, and uh, things will change for the better almost instantly. That's my reparations plan. Tear down the George Floyd murals, um, disband the Jordan Neely protests, put criminals in prison. It's not going to solve every problem, but it'll solve a lot of them. And it's a good start. And it's certainly better than any proposal that the left is currently making. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, the weather is warming up here in Nashville. Do you know what that means? It's barbecue season. I don't want to brag, but I make a mean burger. The last thing I want to be doing when I'm getting ready to host a barbecue is driving around worrying about where to refill my propane grill tank. And that's why I'm a huge fan of Cinch. Cinch is a propane uh, grill tank home delivery service. They deliver propane tanks right to your door. Cinch delivers on your schedule and does not require any long-term commitment or subscription. Plus, delivery is completely contactless. You don't have to wait at home for them to show up. You can track the order on the Cinch app from anywhere. Could not be easier. Whether you're grilling for the Sweet Baby Gang, camping with your family, Lighting up your fire pit on a cold summer night, whatever it is, Cinch's propane delivery service ensures that you have the fuel you need to make the most of every moment. So go online to cinch.com or download their app to order. New customers can get their first tank exchange for just $10 with promo code Walsh. So go to cinch.com or download the Cinch app and use promo code Walsh to get your first tank exchange for just 10 bucks. That's C-Y-N-C-H.com, promo code Walsh. This is a limited time order and you must live within a Cinch service area to redeem it. Visit cinch.com offer for details. Start with a little bit of political news. You know, if you're like the average person, then your faith in polling is probably probably depends largely on uh, on whether the poll says what you want it to say. That's how most people seem to operate. And this is true on both sides. This is really is a both sides thing. Um, you see it on the right. You know, a poll comes out and uh, it's it's looks bad for Trump, and then you'll hear conservatives say, "Well, it's polling. Polling is fake." <laughs> you trust polls, Pfft, moron. And then a poll comes out and it's good for him to say, look, he's uh, clearly the front runner. Uh, so it's both sides kind of do that. I, that's why I try to be consistent across the board when it comes to polls. And my general position is that polls are sort of fake. They're all sort of fake, but you can glean something from them if you apply, you know, the grain of salt. So but it's, it's, uh, there's an element of, of fakeness to it, but you can still get to dig a little bit deeper sometimes. You can still find something in it that uh, might tell you a little bit about the actual situation in the country. So even with a grain of salt, um, this poll does not look good for Biden. Here's uh, George Stephanopoulos on it. President Biden pushing back on questions about his age from Stephanie Rule as he bids for re-election. It's just one of the big challenges he faces now, more revealed by our brand new poll. Political director Rick Klein here to break it down. And Rick, this poll is just brutal for President Biden. Absolutely, George. And you talked earlier about that record low approval rating for President Biden. It's actually six points down just since February. And the skepticism over his leadership extends deep inside his own party. Only 36% of Democrats think that their party should nominate Joe Biden for a second term. 58% say they would uh, support someone else or prefer someone else. That's despite the fact that the entire DNC, most of the Democratic establishment, has rallied behind President Biden, and you're seeing real weaknesses in the coalition that powered Joe Biden to the presidency back in, in 2020. Biden carried independence by 
13 points against Donald Trump. He is now trailing Trump by nine points among those same voters. He carried black voters by 75 points in 2020. Now he is up just 35. That may sound like a lot, but the fact of the matter is, in modern politics, that is not the kind of number that a Democrat needs to be victorious. And then, of course, that, that does spill over into the head-to-head -head matchup, the hypothetical rematch, Trump versus Biden. Right now, a seven-point edge in our poll from uh, in Trump leading Biden. And, and, and in fact, it's an identity number with Ron DeSantis in a head-to-head -head that might happen next November. That tells us at this very early stage, George, that this race is shaping up a lot more about the incumbent president, Joe Biden, than it is about any of his challengers. Uh, that's one of the litmus tests for polls, at least political polls, I think, is you know, look, what are the supporters of the guy who's losing in the poll saying about it? And if even they are admitting that it's bad, it's brutal, actually, as, uh, as we're told, then it's, it's probably pretty bad. And this one, this one is bad. And um, it's also part of a, cons it's, a, it's also not an aberration. It's part of a consistent theme here. These approval ratings, what was it, 30, 36%. Um, and that, you know, there's a little bit of a historical adjustment you have to make there because um, these days, like, I don't think it's possible at this point for a president to poll over like 50% in approval rating. Uh, but even then, 36% is incredibly low. It's not a surprise either. People are, the economy's in shambles, uh, crime running rampant. Uh, you, you can't even take the subway without having to worry about being uh, assaulted by some crazy homeless person. And also, the guy running for re-election will be 82 years old, which I think is a major part of this. The fact that Joe Biden's presidency and his administration have, have made people's lives worse is the biggest part of it. But also his age is, uh, is it has to be a major factor in all this. You know, I would guess that if the situation was exactly the same economically in every other way, but Joe Biden was 10 years younger, his polling, polling numbers are probably quite a bit better. Shouldn't be, but they would be. Um. The thing you heard at the end there, I think, is key, though, that this is a race shaping up to be about Joe Biden, which is exactly what we want. That's, that's what it should be. You're running against an incumbent. He's been an abysmal failure by every measure. Okay, Nothing is better in the country today than it was when Biden took over. Everything is worse. And that's what the race has to be about. So whoever it is running against Joe Biden, it'll probably be Trump, but, uh, you know, the primary has not even happened yet. Uh, whoever it is, the, the strategy that they have to use is to make it about Biden. Don't make it about yourself. Make it about him. More political news. ABC obtained what they're saying is exclusive footage of uh, Ron DeSantis. This is footage that was leaked to ABC of Ron DeSantis doing debate prep back in, uh, back in 2018. This is part of a theme now. We saw all last week the exclusive footage that was leaked of Tucker Carlson to Media Matters. And what, what, what were we saying about that footage? It's, well, they, they keep releasing all this footage of Tucker Carlson, and there'll probably be more that comes out because there's like hundreds of hours of footage, probably of off-air footage of Tucker Carlson. Um, but it all, it, it all makes him look normal and relatable. There's, there's nothing scandalous there. And it makes him look all the better when you consider that, that since they have all this footage, 
they're going to put the worst possible stuff out. They're going to lead with that. If they have something really bad, if they have Tucker Carlson saying or doing something really bad on camera, that'd be out already. They're not going to put out a bunch of uh, stuff of him being normal and then three weeks from now say, oh yeah, by the way, we have this. So we can assume that doesn't exist. Um, and now Ron DeSantis is getting similar treatment. So this is, again, ABC touting exclusive footage. It's a big deal. They got this um, footage of debate prep in 2018. The only way that I could see that they would have gotten this footage is, I mean, it's the only way they could have gotten it is someone that was at least at the time on Ron DeSantis' team gave it to ABC. Um, we don't know who that was, but someone did. And um, anyway, here's the footage that we're told is uh, supposed to be a big scandal for Ron DeSantis. Has the NRA donated to me? I, I don't think the NRA is quite the boogeyman the Democrats think it is. Do we hit him on guns or just everyone who cares about guns every, is going to vote for me? Is there any issue upon which you disagree with President Trump? Obviously there is because I've, I mean, I've voted contrary to him in the cop. I have to frame it in a way. It's not going to piss off all his voters. So what I do is I do what I think is right. I support um, his agenda in terms of what he's been able to do. If I have a disagreement, I talk to him in private. I think when you walk up there, if you have a pad, you have to write in all caps at the top of the pad, likable. And just look, I, I do the same thing because I have the same personality. We're both aggressive. Wow. That is, uh, that's a major scandal. So uh, apparently, I, I can't even believe this. Um, and as a formerly a Ron DeSantis supporter, I'm going to have to start rethinking my support for him because apparently Ron DeSantis engaged in political strategy before a debate. He was with his team and they were strategizing how to, how to, how to best answer questions and how he should present himself. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm stunned. Uh, no politician in the history of politics has ever done this. I, I, this, this, he's the first one to ever do something as horrific as this. And he has a, not just the political strategy, but apparently he has a, he has a team of people around him and it's their job to work on strategy with him. Unbelievable. They're making a lot of the fact that uh, whoever was on, you know, off camera there was saying to, to write the word likable at the top of his uh, sheet of notes as he goes into the debate, which the only thing surprising about that maybe is that it's such useless advice. Okay. The fact that a, that a politician is being advised to come off as likable, I think every politician consciously tries to do that. Being told to write it on your sheet of paper, is, that's really bad advice. It's kind of useless advice. You probably don't need to say it if you're a political advisor. You probably don't. You don't need to actually say out loud to your candidate, you know, you should be likable. Oh, I should? You mean I want people to like me and not hate me? I had no idea. That's the one, if there's anything shocking to come out of that, it's that there's rather redundant advice being given. But other than that, uh, this was Ron DeSantis working out a political strategy. He didn't, it, it, it wasn't like he was sitting there with his advisors planning to lie Okay, he wasn't saying, oh, these idiots, they'll fall for anything. Let's lie about this. Nothing like that. And again, we can assume that nothing like that exists, okay, on camera, because if it did, it would have come out by now. Especially if there are people on Ron DeSantis' team or that used to be on his team that are now willing to take footage like this and leak it to the, to the left-wing press. 
If there was something really bad, if there were really terrible skeletons in his closet, we can be pretty sure we'd, we'd see them by now. All right, moving to this, you know, it was a pretty terrible weekend. Two mass killings, which isn't to say mass shootings, but two mass killings, both in Texas. Uh, and in both cases, the alleged assailants are Hispanic, which is relevant only because in both cases, predictably, the media is trying to pin the blame on white supremacy. But neither of the alleged culprits are actually white. So Daily Wire has the first report. Law enforcement officials said the suspect who murdered at least eight people and injured half a dozen more at the Allen Premium Outlets in Texas was a 33-year-old Latino male who reportedly worked as a security guard. He was wearing a tactical vest, armed with a rifle, a handgun, and had other weapons in his car, according to officials. The FBI raided a home in the Northeast Patrol Division of Dallas on Saturday where the suspect reportedly lived with his parents. They reportedly needed a translator to speak with the family. Um, there's footage of this, which I would not recommend watching, but the suspect drives up in a gray Dodge Charger and then uh, gets out of the car and starts spraying bullets. Um, we still don't, there's still no official information on his motive or anything else. He had no serious criminal record and was working as a security guard. Now, that was the shooting. Um, but unfortunately, again, not the only mass killing to happen over the weekend. The other one reported by Fox, the number of people killed when a man crashed his vehicle into a crowd of pedestrians in Brownsville, Texas on Sunday has risen to eight, police say, and at least 11 have been injured. The Brownsville Police Department told Fox News that eight victims uh, died at the scene. At least 11 others have been transported to area hospitals. The driver, who police confirmed is a Hispanic man, has been arrested and charged, but investigations are ongoing. Uh, they're doing a toxicology report, obviously. And the, the initial reports from authorities is that they, this appears to be an intentional attack. And this one, too, there's a, a lot of video footage that was making the rounds on social media, uh, the kind of footage that if you were on Twitter over the weekend, you would have probably seen some of it, whether you wanted to or not. And I certainly didn't want to, but it was right there. You know, you're scrolling by and you see a car plow into a bunch of people and kill them. This is... Um, Becoming extremely common on, on social media now. It was like if you're if you are a regular social media user, um, and you have been over the last several years, you you have certainly seen people die on camera. Like you you, it's unavoidable that you'll see it at this point. It's becoming so ubiquitous, um, which I don't think helps anything. I know there are some people that say, well, we need to get this footage out there. People need to see it so they understand what's going on. I don't think it helps anything. I think if, if, any, if, if it does anything, it hurts because it desensitizes people. After a while, when you just see all of this death, I think it, it, if anything, it has the effect of desensitizing, which is exactly the opposite of what we want. We still don't know a lot about either of these incidents. The authorities, again, are saying that the car attack was likely intentional. It also seems at least certainly possible that he was high or drunk or something along those lines. It could have been a combination. It could have been drunk and done it on purpose. So we don't know. But assuming it was intentional for a moment, we would have then two targeted intentional mass killings in one weekend. And they don't fit into the neat media narrative. Um, the attackers are non-white. Only one used a gun. Okay, so we had the shooting that happened before the car attack. And we heard, as always, from the left, we'll take the guns away, take the guns away, we'll solve this problem. Then shortly after that, we have eight people killed in a span of, you know, five seconds because someone plowed a car into them. Because it turns out that even if you don't have a gun, 
we, we all have access to these, you know, um, hundreds, these, these uh, two-ton uh, metal vehicles that we all, that we, you could drive around 80 miles an hour. So we, we, have, we have access to lots of technology that bad people can use to kill other people. Which is why the fundamental question, as I'm always raising after things like this, the fundamental question is not how did they do it? Because, again, unfortunately, there are many ways for a bad person to kill lots of people. A gun is only one of the ways they can do it. Um, so that's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is why? Why? Are people doing this? If it seems like this is happening more and more, you know, not a weekend goes by that we don't have stories like this. That's certainly how it seems to me. But that's not a reflection that people have more access to these tools of, of, of death. People have been driving cars for many decades. People have had guns for hundreds of years. So that, that can't be the, the answer. Um, and anyway, that only answers the how question. The, the, the other question is why. Why would somebody want to do this? Most people, millions of Americans have guns, and they, they're, they're not ever going to murder anybody. They have no inclination to, no desire to. It's not even that they're not doing it because they're afraid they're going to go to jail. It's th- they don't get to that point in their mind because, like most of us, I have guns. I never, I, I never have to say to myself, well, if I do this, I'll go to jail. I, it's, I, you don't have the inclination. You don't have the desire. The thought would never even occur to you to do that. There's, there's a zero chance of it happening for most people. Just as most of us drive cars around every day. It, there, there's zero chance that we will intentionally plow into someone and kill them. So if, if simply having access to these tools is what causes it, then that doesn't explain why for the vast majority of people who have guns or have knives or have cars or have any weapon or tool that could be used to kill people, doesn't explain why most of us would never do this, never, never do it. But then there are the people that do. And it seems like there are more people, the proportion of people who are inclined to engage in these murderous sprees has gone up. And if that's true, there's still the question of why. Um, and we're not, we're, not, we're not getting to that question. We're not attempting to grapple with it at all. Because there you get to uh, lots of things that the media has no interest in talking about, the left doesn't want to talk about. You get to things like the collapse of the family, um, the spiritual decay in our culture, you know, the, the, uh, the crisis of meaning and purpose, people living these kind of empty lives. All of these things, these are all factors that lead to this. It's not like, you know, if you, you take this security guard, alleged security guard who committed the, the mass shooting. If, if you were to take the guns away from him ahead of time, would that, would that mean that we're safe now? Would it, would it be safe to be around this guy? Would, would you feel comfortable living next to him? 
Would you feel comfortable sitting next to him on, a, on a, the subway? Even if he didn't have a gun, would you? Of course not. He's, he's, he's still a homicidal maniac. Still an evil person who has the desire to kill lots of people. Now he just has to be slightly more creative in how he figures out how to do it. So you haven't solved any problem. And we're never going to completely solve the problem of human evil, but we can address it. We can mitigate it if we actually start talking about it and dealing with that aspect of the problem, which we don't. All right. The Daily Wire has just reported the security guard who shot and killed a shoplifting suspect in self-defense spoke out about the incident on Friday. Michael Earl Wayne Anthony is the security guard at Walgreens in downtown San Francisco. On April 27th, Anthony shot and killed an alleged shoplifter, later identified as local transgender activist Banco Brown. We talked about this in the opening, uh, I believe, on Friday. In an interview with the San Francisco Standard, Anthony spoke out about the incident and the effects it had on him. Uh, Anthony said, I'm still dealing with it, still don't understand, and don't have the time to reflect. It's not like I go through this many times. This is a very life-changing matter. Anthony de- declined to elaborate on the details of the shooting, according to a Thursday report from the San Francisco Standard. Um, police said that Anthony tried to stop Brown from shoplifting. He was still standing inside the store when Brown walked out. Brown then turned around and allegedly spat on Anthony and raised a hand to him. It was at that point that Anthony drew his gun and uh, fired. It was also at that point that, as the DA, San Francisco DA, said, uh, it went from a shoplifting incident, shoplifting is where you just take the merchandise and walk out with it, shoplifting to robbery, because now force is being used. Anthony pointed out that security guards like him are under immense pressure in confrontational situations like that, and that it happened very fast. Quote, this is important for more people to be aware of, he said. It was happening too frequently. It's a lot to deal with. It's a lot of pressure. A person can only take so much. When you're limited to certain options, something will happen. This is talking about being a security guard. Being a security guard is difficult because you're on your own in more ways than one, he added. Who has my back? Nobody, he said. You're left with no support. It's a frightening feeling with a lot of people around you who could do you harm, he added. So we heard on Friday the uh, the activists that are calling for the abolition of armed security. They don't want police, and they also don't want armed security. And they don't want uh, a citizen police force, which is the other thing that we were told. Well, get rid of the police. We, we uh, abolish the police, get rid of them, defund the police. And then we could have uh, citizens, the community, community policing, I think is the phrase they use. The communities can police themselves. Well, that's what happened on the subway in New York, and they weren't too happy about that. So they don't want police. Then you say, well, well can we at least have armed security? No, you can't have security. Okay, well, communities can police themselves. Nope, can't do that either. They, they're whittling it down to the one, the one single option that they want to leave open to you, which is to sit there and endure whatever a criminal scumbag wants to do. Whatever, whatever he decides he wants to do, the only option they want to leave open to you is to surrender to that criminal's whims. Um, how are they going to get rid of armed security, though? Well, they can't. Uh, they know that th- their efforts to abolish and defund the police have basically failed. Uh, they're not going to be able to pass a law uh, prohibiting people from, individuals from having armed security for their property or prohibiting businesses from having armed security on their uh, premises. They, they would like to do that, but they're not going to be able to do it. So what's the way around that? Well, the way around it is to bring things to a point where 
nobody would want to be an armed security guard because it's, it's, it's not worth the risk. So they can't prevent Walgreens from having armed security, but they can make it so that it's not worth it for anyone to take that job as a security guard, which is also the end run maneuver they've pulled when it comes to police. Well, we can't defund the police. We can't abolish policing as much as we would like, but we can make it clear that if you take this job, we're going to ruin your life. We're going to put you in an impossible lose-lose situation. Every time you put on the badge and go outside, um, you know, and get in your patrol car, it, we're, we're, we are creating a series of lose-lose situations. Because if there's a crime happening and you don't do anything to stop it, well, then you're negligent and, uh, you know, you haven't done your job. If you step in to try to stop it, you could get hurt yourself. Or if you do succeed in stopping it, then that, you, that means you're using some kind of force on the criminal, and then, uh, and then we could ruin your life for that. So no matter what happens, if you're a police officer, as soon as you encounter, as soon as you're actually uh, face-to-face with a crime, which is the whole reason why your job exists, you lose. And they can do the same thing with armed security. Yeah, we can have you there kind of as a decorative feature, But the moment that something actually happens, like the reason why your job exists, uh, the moment that happens and you encounter it, you you lose. And it's going to be much easier to scare people away from from, uh, these kind of armed security roles than it is even for police. Because I imagine it pays a lot worse, benefits are a lot worse, and people are going to say, well, why would I do that? I mean, I certainly wouldn't. Would you take a job as an armed security guard at a Walgreens in San Francisco? As this security guard points out, it's no one has your back. It's like you're there to not just protect Walgreens, but as we talked about yet on Friday, you're also defending the community in a very real sense. Because people in the community need these products that Walgreens sells. And if you don't stop people from stealing them, then Walgreens shuts down and nobody can have access to them. So you are protecting the community's access to these necessary items. But the community's not going to have your back. So why even take the job? The other thing is that we, we, you know, he talks about the, the emotional impact it's had on him uh, after killing this Banco Brown person. And that's a very real thing. And it shows you how he, he is the real victim here. Okay, when, a, when an armed security guard is forced to shoot somebody because they're trying to rob the place, the person who pulled the trigger is the victim of that death. Okay, Banco Brown is not the victim of Banco Brown's death. Banco Brown b- brought that on, uh, this is a biological female, I bl- believe, right? Brought that on herself. So she's not the victim. She brought it on herself. You know, the, the victim of Banco Brown's death is the security guard who was forced to kill her. Because now he has to deal with that for the rest of his life. Yeah, he was totally justified. He was right right in doing it. We know that. Even the San Francisco DA couldn't figure out a way to put charges on him. So we know that it was extremely justified. Uh, But but still, if you're a decent person, you don't want to kill anybody. And now you got to deal with that for the rest of your life. It's the same same thing with so many of these uh, police shootings that we see. Real victim in so many of these police shootings, it's the police officer who had to pull the trigger. You know, the violent criminal who created this situation, you're not the victim of that. You created the situation, it's your fault. Now, this other person who didn't want the situation to 
be created. Now they have to carry the, uh, the, the, the emotional burden of that. It's just like if you, if you break into my house and I have to kill you, which I would, I, I am now the victim of your death because I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to have that on. I don't, I just, I don't want to have to carry that. So it's all part of the impossible kind of uh, situations that we create for normal law-abiding human beings. All right, let's get to the comment section. Biden's plans to help struggling business owners in the wake of COVID lockdowns were to prioritize black, Latino, Native American, and women-owned businesses. It goes without saying that if the roles were reversed, if Biden had to, you know, said that his plans were to prioritize white male-owned businesses, there would have been outrage. Well, if you own a business, you can't rely on the government to bail you out. You need to take matters into your own hands, and innovation refunds can help you do just that. If your business has five or more employees and managed to survive COVID, you could be eligible to receive a payroll tax rebate of up to $26,000. That's per employee through the employee retention credit. Just go to getrefunds.com. Innovation Refunds has already helped uh, clients claim over $3 billion in payroll tax refunds through the ERC, and they may be able to help your business too. This is not a loan. There's no payback. It's a refund of your taxes. Simple as that. There's no upfront charge either. They don't get paid until your business gets its refund. So don't let this opportunity pass you by. See if your business qualifies for ERC assistance in just eight minutes. Go to getrefunds.com. Click on qualify me and answer a few questions. This payroll tax refund is only available for a limited amount of time. Don't miss out. Go to getrefunds.com, getrefunds.com. Ipsatilla says, Matt, the new linguistic marching orders are in. Rather than calling people canceled, they are now persons experiencing cancellation. That, that's true. I should be more sensitive while I'm canceling people. Uh, Roland says, the term unhoused is meant to proclaim what society has done to a person, not a description of a person's state, thus removing personal responsibility. Yeah, I get that that's the, the uh, you know, intention behind changing the term to make it more passive. Um, but I'm, it's still not clear to me how homeless didn't already accomplish that. So that's the thing. And this, this also shows that how the left's, um, their manipulation of language, why it, it's, it's so effective. Because what ends up happening is that we end up defending what really is PC language when they come up with even more PC language. So they come up with a, with a PC term to describe something. And maybe at first there's some pushback, but then eventually it just becomes part of the vernacular. And then they, and then they come up with, a, with, a, with new, a new terminology to replace that one. And then we defend the most recent PC, not realizing that even that is PC. So, so homeless as a term, you know, this, this is not how people used to describe this group of people. They would have used terms like vagrant, drifter, you know, these kinds of terms. Um, even terms that were much more directly insulting, like bum, you know, things like that. Um, and then we came up with this idea of homeless. Because the, uh, the, the concept is there's, there's no judgment being passed. It, it already sounds pretty sort of passive and neutral, just homeless, with, without a home. Less homeless. And it's, it, sounds like, it already sounds like something that happens to a person. Not, not to, it's not the result of, of any choices that they made. Even though, in reality, vast majority of cases of homelessness, it is the result of choices that were made. Uh, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help these people. It just means that, well, if you want to help people, you, you want to start by understanding why they're in the position that they're in. 
And it's important to understand that, that no, it's, it's not simply victims of circumstance. It's not simply that, uh, well, they tripped and fell one day and next thing you know, their house was gone and they're, they're, they're house, un, unhoused or homeless. Uh, because if it was that, then yeah, you could solve the problem um, by building homes and giving them to the homeless population. And the only argument against that would be one of, uh, of economics. But if that could actually solve the problem, okay, if that could solve it, okay, there's a 100% guarantee that you could solve the homeless problem by simply giving homes to all the homeless people, and then that's it, and we're done with homelessness, then even with the, the enormous financial burden, I would say, well, it's, it's worth it. Okay, let's do that then. Let's figure out a way to do it. Let's build a bunch of homes, give homes to all the homeless. But that would not come close to solving the problem. Because when you take someone who is on the street, they're addicted to drugs, and they're Jordan Neely, mentally ill, violent, all this, and you put them in a home, they're going to be back out on the street in about 30 minutes. Okay, The home is going to be destroyed, and they're going to be back out on the street. Um, that, that, that's, there's a reason why they ended up out there. Um, there's a reason why, look, it's it's... If you're living out on the street corner, it would be better. Like you, you could get a, you could go to some flea bag motel, and rent a, a room for extremely cheap rate. Um, and you would think that even if you had like a minimum wage job or something, you'd, you'd have enough to at least afford that. It's not a good life, but it's better than being out on the street. They're not going to make those kinds of choices. And in many cases, because they've you know, it, if, if it's a drug addict, a, a drug addiction situation, then everything goes into the drug. Whatever you give them goes into the drug. You give them a house, goes into the drug. They'll sell the house to buy drugs and they'll be dead. That's what will happen. So what was the point there? Oh, yes. Well, the term unhoused. So it, it's homeless already kind of a passive thing. Unhoused makes it more, more passive uh, and it becomes a real problem. It's not just annoying PC language. It makes it harder for us to understand the actual cause of this crisis, which means that we cannot solve it. Um, and by the way, if you want, we, we've talked before, but if you want real world examples of uh, maybe not giving, just giving houses to the homeless, but there have been cities where they've said, well, let's, um, let's require hotels to house the homeless. That's so we could solve the problem there. Take the homeless, put them in a hotel room, problem solved. Then what, is, what ends up happening? The, the hotel rooms are destroyed and the people you gave the hotel rooms to end up back on the street the next day. Um, other comment says, Matt, I, I would want to see you defend your idea of restricting transition procedures from adults aware of consequences of their decision and willing to incur them. I disagree with this and think you can't defend this beyond that you don't like it. That position is very unpopular. Uh, well, maybe un, an unpopular position, but the unpopular positions are so often the right ones. And that would be the case here as well. I think I have defended it many times. Um, it's a restriction, and I'm not going to go through the whole, you can listen to any show where I've addressed this, but I'm not going to go through the whole case. But the most important thing to remember is that what I would be advocating, it's not a restriction on the individual, um, the individual trans-identified person. It's actually a restriction on the medical industry. It's a restriction on the doctors. And the argument is that it is not okay for doctors to do that to a person. It's not okay for a doctor to, in exchange for money, take your money and then mutilate you, even if you want to be mutilated. 
So this is not a matter of simple personal choice. This is not mutilation people are doing in their homes. Okay, it's not like a self-castration that's going on in the home. And that, I would be in favor of stopping someone from doing that too. Okay, because if someone's going to castrate themselves, they're obviously not mentally well and for their own sake. So they don't harm themselves. We have to stop it. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about mutilation that is done by some other party to a, to, to a, to a third party. And this is a restriction on that party that, that wants to inflict the mutilation and profit from it. And ultimately, they're profiting from the mental illness and confusion of people who, yeah, they might be asking. They might literally be asking for it and saying, do this to me. They don't understand what they're asking for. The fact that they would want it in the first place is evidence enough of their um, mental unwellness. All right. And finally, Austin says, the World War III or the culture war choice sounds a lot like guns kill kids, not drag queens. I can actually hate that kids are killed with guns and that adults abuse kids. Thank you. Yeah, that's a lot of what these false choices are all about. And we heard, we heard on, on Friday, the, uh, some on the right all, all of a sudden have decided culture war doesn't matter anymore because we have to avoid World War III, um, as if we have to make a choice between those two. And also as if the, the conservatives who now have abandoned the culture war, they're, they're dedicating themselves full time now to stopping World War III, which again, if you're a normal citizen, how exactly are you going to do that? What's your plan to stop World War III? I'm worried about World War III too. I don't want it to happen. Okay. If you're saying, well, I'm not worried about culture war, drag queens. I got to stop World War III. Okay. Well, go ahead. What, what, what are you doing to stop World War III? You're going on some, uh, it was like Mission Impossible. You're going on some global, globe-trotting mission. No, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting in your house doing nothing. So this is an excuse. There, there's, there's one thing that we can do. Like we can actually engage with the culture and make a difference in the culture because we're all part of the culture. We all, we all comprise the culture. Um, you, we can do something there. And you're making an excuse for not doing anything. That's what it all is. I want to talk to you about something I don't usually talk about, except when I'm reading this exact copy three times a week. Hair. Not mine. My hair is handsome and brilliant because I use Jeremy's Razor Shampoo and Conditioner. I'm talking about yours because if you're not using, uh, also using Jeremy's Restorative uh, restorative Tea Tree and Argon Oil. I read this copy three times a week and I, can't, I still can't even read it because I'm that stupid. Anyway, Restorative Tea Tree and Argon Oil Blend to wash your mane. You're doing it wrong and are asking to be canceled. Jeremy's Razors is more than a razor company. It's a men's grooming brand that doesn't hate men. Their shampoo and conditioner, along with their exfoliating charcoal body wash, are all made from high-quality natural ingredients right here in the USA. They're sulfate-free, and even though I still don't know what a paraben is, they're free of those also. But most importantly, Jeremy's Razors hair and body bundles are woke-free. So stop giving your money to woke companies who hate you. Head over to jeremysrazors.com. Check out their shampoo, conditioner, and body wash bundles today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. I have uh, frequently discussed the trials and tribulations faced by parents who seek tolerable entertainment options for their children. Really, we would prefer something wholesome and enriching, but that very often proves to be too high a bar. So we'll settle for tolerable, which simply means that it's a children's show or film that doesn't engage in left-wing brainwashing and isn't so loud, stupid, and obnoxious that we can't stand to be in the room when it's on. This is a bar high enough that 99% of all modern children's entertainment cannot hope to clear it, uh, and it whittles the options down considerably uh, so that we can, um, you know, we can feel pretty safe with whatever few options are left. And one of the options left is a show that listeners of this podcast first alerted me to. It's, um, it, not only, it, it not only clears the not woke, not obnoxious bar, 
but even manages the extremely rare feat of hurdling the actively wholesome and enriching bar, which is way up here. Bluey is a cartoon originally out of Australia about a family of uh, blue healer dogs. Bluey herself, the, the older daughter in the family, is the main character, but most episodes prominently feature her family members, her younger sister, her mom, and her dad. And the dad is named Bandit in the show, probably the show's most beloved character. And the show is, uh, is funny, it's entertaining, it's clever. And although the characters are anthropomorphic animals, the family dynamics are you know, pretty realistic and, and also positive. The dad character especially is a source of comedy, um, which for most modern entertainment would mean that he's a stupid bumbling oaf and the butt of all the jokes, but that's not the case in this show. Bandit is portrayed as an attentive and engaged father who leads a happy cartoon family. Uh, the show is not a work of towering artistic genius, probably not going to be the kind of thing that people are studying and talking about 500 years from now. That's fine. It's, it's just a, it's a wholesome children's show. It's fine. It's good. It's normal. And that's why the woke crowd is absolutely determined to ruin it. Back in, so let's trace this, uh, the history of the, the, the woke crowd going after Bluey. Um, it's been a long campaign, a long uh, battle they've been waging. Back in 2021, there's a journalist named Beverly Wang uh, wrote an article for ABC, which is the Australian broadcasting company in this case. And she applauded the show for being, as she says, tender, nuanced, and joyful. And yet at the same time, she criticized it for its lack of representation. In an article that um, I'm 99% sure isn't supposed to be satire, Wang wrote, quote, as a parent of color, I'm always conscious of the presence or absence of diverse representation in kids' pop culture, what it means for children, the conversations we have around that. I sincerely believe you don't have to be other to think about this too. We live in a world where the majority of main characters on children's television are white, where there are more animals than people of color protagonists populating the pages of children's books. Where are the disabled, queer, poor, gender diverse dogs of color and single parent dog families in Bluey's Brisbane? If they're in the background, well, let them come forward. Now, the most obvious answer here is that um, the show does feature dogs of color. The color is blue, hence the name of the show. Does it overrepresent the blue colored community? Does it make blue people feel more welcome and included at the expense of otherizing those in the audience who might be, you know, pink or green or purple or some other color? Perhaps. But these seem like minor complaints. Does the show fail to include queer and, quote, gender diverse dogs, whatever that means? Again, yes, but that's because the makers of Bluey, um, you know, made the, the, the uh, provocative decision to not turn the show into a vehicle for sexual indoctrination. And thank God for that. As to the lack of poor dogs and single parent family dogs and disabled dogs and dogs with hearing difficulties and dogs with ADHD and dogs with food allergies and illegal immigrant dogs, dogs with sleep apnea, dogs with eczema, etc. These boxes are not checked, but that's because the show is not trying to check boxes. It's just trying to tell a story, a very simple story to children. Given that none of the children in the audience are dogs and none of them have dog parents, none of them will feel represented in the extremely literal way that the left demands. But that's a good thing because worthwhile children's entertainment is supposed to activate a child's imagination. You don't want to put a child into a box and then give him a character tailor-made for that box and say, here you go, child, this is your character. You can relate to him. This is the one assigned to you so you can relate to this character specifically. Instead, you want a child to use his imagination 
and, and, and use that to engage with and relate to the characters. For example, right now, the fictional characters that resonate the most with my three-year-old daughter are Spider-Man and Elsa from Frozen. And that, that doesn't mean she's gender fluid, half boy and half girl. It means that she's an imaginative toddler, and that's a good thing. But that was only the first woke attack launched against Bluey. A year later, two Australian academics published an article talking, uh, taking aim at Bandit, the dad character, noting a, quote, darker side to this lovable character. They claim that Bandit, quote, never strays far from reductive stereotypes, bemoaning the fact that he is a, quote, likable roguish male stuck between childhood and adulthood whose disrespect of authority and rough and ready masculinity reflects Australia's emotional attachment to the working class underdog. The writers also take Bandit to task for incidents of alleged bullying because of the ways that he uh, playfully teases his children in the show. He's bullying them. And they scold the cartoon dog for being, quote, surprisingly conservative when it comes to gender values. In other words, as already established, the dad character is portrayed as normal, masculine, funny, which is why he's so popular and relatable with the audience, and also why uh, leftist weirdo academics are so concerned about him. Fast forward another year to this past week, and we have the next woke assault on a family of fictional cartoon dogs. An episode in season three titled Exercise opens with Bandit stepping on a scale in the bathroom. And uh, then he says, oh man, I need to do some exercise. And that's the scene. It's a scene that, I mean, may seem utterly uncontroversial and unremarkable to you, but that's because you're a normal human being. To the left, however, the scene is problematic. And that's how it was described by this alleged child development expert on uh, TikTok, who has a PhD, by the way. And she wants to explain why we should be very concerned about this scene in Bluey. Listen. Bluey recently screwed up in a pretty big way, and it's made a lot of people angry. But basically, there's a brand new episode called um, Exercise, where at the start, Bandit, Bluey's dad, grabs his belly, I'll show you a picture here, and kind of just looks at it and like goes to the scale, weighs himself and goes, oh, I need to do exercise. That in and of itself is a really problematic narrative to have on a children's television show when we know that most girls by the time they're nine think about dieting, think they're overweight and really have a problem with body image already. There's a couple ways to solve this problem. The first one is that we just not let the kids watch the episode, but that's not really going to work because kids are gonna see this messaging in many places throughout their lives. So it's actually better to use this episode of a relatively safe children's television show to start the discussion about body image, about how we treat our body, about not body positivity or body negativity, but body neutrality. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter what your body looks like, it matters how it feels. And that's the most important thing that we need to teach our children. Uh, not really the point, but that uh, I never had the Vegemite stuff, but it could not look less appealing. It looks, it basically looks like it, it's, is it like black tar and coffee grinds that you smear on your toast with butter? Um, body neutrality, she says, of course, telling society to be neutral about obesity. It's, it's like telling lifeguards to practice drowning neutrality. Whether somebody is swimming or drowning, it's not up for us to judge. Drowning is just, just as valid an experience as swimming. Who are we to tell people whether they should be at the surface of the water or beneath it? Just as we should draw no distinctions between a physically fit person and a person who is morbidly obese. Sure, the obese person is literally dying in front of us. It's killing themselves, destroying their bodies, their skeletal structures, their internal organs. But that's just how they've chosen to live and express themselves and die. 
Certainly wouldn't want to send the problematic message that being healthy and living a long life is somehow better than being extremely fat and dying of a heart attack when you're 42. This, anyway, was the argument made by leftists, uh, various leftists on TikTok. And in this case, the first two attacks fell flat. This one actually resonated. At least it resonated with the ABC, which decided to cut that scene from the episode. They issued this statement, quote, The recent episode of Bluey, Exercise, has been republished by the ABC following the decision by the, the makers of the program. The new version provides families with the opportunity to manage important conversations in their own way. As the home of Bluey and the ABC supports the decision to re-edit the program, and we have updated the episode on our platforms. BBC Studios will use this revised version for global distribution and also support this decision. Well, that's a relief. Now children who watch that episode of Bluey will uh, not be exposed to any objectionable content encouraging them to engage in inappropriate behavior, such as, you know, exercising. This is the left's rules for uh, children's entertainment. That's the rule. It cannot be normal. It cannot be wholesome. And it cannot encourage moral or physical improvement. The last rule is the most important to them. And as long as Bluey continues to violate these rules, it will remain a target. It won't be satisfied until Bluey is rewritten as a show about morbidly obese gay dogs with body dysmorphia and clinical depression. That's, that's what they want. And if the makers of the show ever succumb to that pressure, they will be the ones who are canceled. But for now, it is Bluey's cancelers who are today canceled. And I'll do it for this portion of shows. Move over to members block. Um, you can become a member today by using code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.